everyone, welcome to the OFD Bookcast. I'm your host, Joshua Bowles, Site Manager, Emperor, Supreme Warlord, and Defender of the Faith over at OneFootDown.com on the SB Nation Network. And yes, this is the Bookcast. We are keeping with it with uh, Notre Dame's Greatest Coaches by Stephen Singular and Mr. Notre Dame himself, Moose Krause. Tonight, uh, or today, if you're listening to it during the daytime, uh, we are just going to, man, we are, we got one chapter that we're going over tonight. It's chapter nine, getting busy. And the reason why we're just going to cover one chapter is because it is dense with nuggets and it has to do with Frank Leahy. And, and this is basically the last the last bits of Frank um, uh, in this book, as far as uh, the overall story. And frankly, he deserves some, some damn respect. And he just, <clears throat> he doesn't get it. He doesn't get the respect Rockney era or Holtz get. Uh, era and Holtz, uh, is, is, call it recency bias, if you will. Uh, there's still many of uh, people living through those eras that uh, walk around, and then Rockney, of course, is just uh, uh, has be- become immortal, um, absolutely immortal. And Leahy, I, and I've, I said it over and over again. And I've probably said it on this bookcast a few times. Is he just he? It's not that he gets overlooked. It's just that I don't think people really appreciate uh, everything that Frank did. And <laughs> I mean, really, he 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 damn near killed himself uh, for Notre Dame. So. We're we're gonna take we're gonna take some time here to to go over this chapter and once again this book is you know it, it weaves in and out of Moose's life um, at, at Notre Dame which was you know from the time he was a player there uh, short time you know we've covered this short time away uh, comes back and you know he's coaching you know for Leahy uh, so. You know, a lot of this is through the eyes of Moose, but also players, uh, you know, and all that. And and so we're going to get a, a, you know, just a, another look at like we've talked about Frank already some, and we're going to talk about him some more here. It's just how it's going to be, but uh, also a lot to do with um, uh, with what was going on with Moose uh, and players and, and the team in general. So, so speaking of Moose, you know he. In February of 44, he joined the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, the war was going on, and guys were leaving left and right all over the country. Um, Leahy didn't have any plans to go to the military. Uh, and Moose had, had a quick chat with Leahy about that. He told Leahy, uh, who did not have plans to enter the military, that he was making a mistake. When the fighting ended, Moose said, the returning players were going to ask their coach what he'd done to defeat Germany and Japan, and if his answer was nothing, he would not command as much respect as before. Now, I don't know if that was what eventually set Leahy off to war, uh, but knowing what we know about Frank, if you knew nothing else, and knowing what, and knowing just what the little bit we've talked about in this, that certainly played a part in his thinking. Uh, his love for football was unque- is unquestioned, uh, and his love of coaching is unquestioned, and his obsessive 
you know, his obsessive nature of winning goes without question. And so if Moose is sitting here telling him that, that, you know, you're going to have a hard time being able to coach like you want to coach because you weren't at war. I think that makes an impact. Um, <laughs> you know, makes a, makes a huge impact. Um, you know, the joke they say around Notre Dame was that, uh, frankly, Frank got away from the strain of coaching, uh, by going off to war. Uh, so maybe it was a little bit of a vacation for him, uh, at least in the, in the war from his own mind, uh, to go to the, the war in the Pacific where he eventually was stationed. Um, you know, Moose, he was, he was leaving, leaving Notre Dame as well. Uh, and he had become the head basketball coach in Notre Dame. Uh, it's just the time. It's so great. You know, when you talk about the players out there battling coaches on the practice field, coaches expected and not just expected to, to practice against their players, but you know, in Frank's, you know, in Frank's era, these were guys that were, the coaches didn't have pads. This was all a point. Remember to, to, to show the players that the old timers were, uh, were hard nosed guys and that they were a bunch of soft babies and you know, mind game that uh, they threw out there. But it's also a time where these guys did a whole bunch of stuff. There's so many different roles. And one of them was, uh, you know, was Moose. He was a basketball coach. Um, <laughs> the, the chapter starts to get into, uh, yeah, Moose's military service a little bit. Um, and you know, there's not a whole lot going on there, uh, as far, as far as what, what the book, kind of, kind of tells us. Uh, but it did say you know, that, you know, Moose was always recruiting new fans. And by the end of the war, he said he converted most of the men he came in contact with. He was bringing them films of games they won. <laughs> he wasn't bringing them any of them that they lost. So he was over there still being a coach, uh, you know, in the lulls of fighting, it said he was setting up basketball and football games on the islands because uh, he, too, was out there in the Pacific. And, you know, he, he couldn't wait to get come home, but he made the, me- the best of every situation um, that he could find. Uh, in fact, Moose was actually court-martialed uh, by his commanding officer for teaching natives how to sing the, the victory march. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't. You know, obviously Moose was not at home, but that says a lot. Probably that alone says probably how much of Notre Dame uh, that Moose was putting out there on a day to day basis during his military service. Uh, (laughs) I just it it cracks me up. Uh, He he Moose finally came home in January of forty six. He was he was a first lieutenant by the time he got home, and. You know, he he resumed his duties. He he was still coaching the basketball team. He was working, you know, these long, long days in the football season, and he was in charge of off-season recruit of recruiting high school football players. Like instead of a staff, it was Moose. And oh, by the way, uh, no flying because after the Rockney crash, people at Notre Dame didn't fly, uh, so he was driving all over the country, most, most of the East coast. Uh, but he was driving to do all these recruiting visits. Um, you know, he didn't have films, uh, uh you know, of players, all that. He had to go and see them. And 
basically it was, you know, he had to be able to spot the talent. So you, you think about all these teams, all these great teams of Leahy's with these great players and, you know, what was accomplished there. So much of that was done by Moose just being able to to sniff out talent and, and to find it out on the road. I mean, a, a lot of that falls on Moose's shoulders. Um, you know, because I don't care how good of a coach you are, uh, you still need some guys to play. And, and Frank certainly had plenty of those. He's a great coach, no question. But he had some good players, um, at least some good bases to work with. And that all comes down to, to the guy that's scouting him. Uh, the book goes on about, uh, you know, about Moose and his family life, um, you know, getting kids, uh, just kind of like their home life a little bit, you know, about a little bit drink, cigar smoking, lots of cigar smoking, uh, you know, and all that. It's, it's like the 1940s, 50s life, like the post-war life, uh, the, where the, the baby boomer, era begins, right? Uh, it was, you say idyllic because it, it's romanticized by so many people. I mean, it, and you know, under the, under the surface, of course, nothing is, is what it seems, but <clears throat> it was in that idyllic time in America where, you know, everyone was just so happy that the war was over and they're back to, you know, back home and, and being able to live their lives, um, with a, with a big W in the wind column for a war. Um, you know Frank. Uh, you know Frank did the did his did his time there and and you know as far as you know out on the war and all that uh, and comes back and and you know there's so many parallels to Frank Leahy that you can draw with uh, with Lou Holtz um, and it may, maybe it has to do with just great coaches in general uh, but. A story was a uh, Frank Love telling the press how bad Notre Dame was going to be. He said it was. He said it so often that people started calling him "Crying Frank." Then he would go out and beat the hell out of people. It made some other coaches mad, and it made <laughs> made some of them not like Notre Dame. There's still some resentment around the country for that. The more Frank coached, the more confident he became. But he never wanted anyone around him to feel overconfident. Now, if that doesn't, I mean, that it just screams Holtz. And later in the chapter, it talks about. How against uh, you know really good teams? Frank's locker room speeches. Said he was a, you know a great locker room order, but his locker room speeches against great teams were were very short, short and to the point, uh, but powerful. Uh, whereas when they would go up against, I think they said in the book against Indiana, uh, they it would you know just be this long, long speech, and I think that's I think that says a lot about coaches. Um, you know, knowing damn well that they're going to go out there and trounce the team. <clears throat> they kind of get into this rhythm of talking to make, and you know, like, like length equals importance, right? Uh, in their minds, <clears throat> excuse me. So the longer they talk, you know, in the, in the locker room, the more it seems like it's that important for them to, for the team and for, for him. So, you know, don't take this lightly. We're going to go out there and, you know, and do this. So you kind of get that kind of feel. <laughs> it's 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 just funny. I mean, because you know Holtz was thought of the same way. You talk, you know, oh God, Navy. You know, scares the hell out of me. <clears throat> it's that kind of stuff right there. That that 
that leads you down that path of 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 uh, thinking that these guys, you know, there's maybe there's something in their DNA. Maybe there's something, you know, maybe a great coach is is really born uh, <laughs> because so many of the great qualities about them. I mean, Nick Saban's one of those guys. I, I think is like that. Um, in that sense, I mean, not all of them have the same traits, but you know, there's quite a few of them where you can be like, you can start pulling them out. Uh, and that certainly was one of them as far as I was concerned. Um, and this just, I'm telling you, this chapter is just full of just, oh my God, just a ton of stories about, about Leahy and his, the team, uh, the way he relates to the team, the way he talks to them, um, and so, you know, we'll kind of go through some. Uh, it says here, another time we were playing Wisconsin, and the score was tied at critical moment in the game. Bob Neff was our left tackle, and he missed an important block on their safety, Pete Ashball, a star in the defensive backfield. He was standing on the sidelines, and when he saw what Neff had done, he called out to him, you son of a bitch, hit that man. Leahy came over to Pete and was frowning, very upset. He looked right at him and said, oh, lad. As long as you're representing Our Lady, you'll never again use such a display of profanity. And if you do, you'll turn in your uniform. Do you understand? I certainly do, Ashbaugh said. About three plays later, the same thing happened with Neff, and Ashbaugh didn't make a sound. Leahy found Pete and said, I do apologize, lad. Robert Neff is a son of a bitch. It's that, I mean, that's that's the Leahy comedy. That's, you know... When you think about when you think about it, it all makes sense, right? Just said, you know, the forties and fifties, and you know that it's calling someone a son of a bitch back then isn't like the calling somebody a son of a bitch now. It's pretty damn. That's pretty serious. That's them fighting words. I mean, them are hardcore fighting words. Uh, so, uh, just kind of shows, you know, you Frank bringing around, and I, I hope my I hope my brogue when I read that was uh, was good enough for you. Um, I. I do appreciate the book talking about how uh, uh, Johnny Lou Jack's uh, impersonation of Frank Leahy is probably the the best around. Um, and and Lou Jack, when he talks about Frank, well, all I mean, a lot of his players do. There's there's a great um, like a short little thing on YouTube that has a lot of these guys talking, and they all break out uh, their own version uh, of impersonating Frank. But I think uh, Lou Jack's probably hits hits it the hardest and they get it. Um, and so there's some comedy there. Frank was so freaking hard on all these guys. Uh, but they, there was ways that they found, uh, you know, to humanize him and to, and to be able to not look at, at him like he was Satan, uh, you know, for, for killing him. Uh, and one of those guys was uh, was a guy named uh, Zygmunt Zerboski. Uh, called him Ziggy. Uh, kids, guy was from uh, from Chicago. Uh, he was a starting tackle on you know three national championship teams. I mean that's that's pretty hardcore. Uh, but he was a guy that um, uh, kind of a jokester, a, a guy that would that would make light of things and kind of which you don't want to say a clown. I mean. I think the book calls him kind of like a the locker room clown or something like that. To me, that, that that's a more of a derogatory um, thing, like a distraction. It, these are these are the kind of the guys you, you call them glue guys, and you call it 
a freaking starting tackle for three national championship guys, locker room glue guys, but that's exactly what he was, um, you know, in every sense. And, you know, guys looked at I mean, he helped keep things in perspective, I guess, in a sense for the players who are out there just thinking that they were uh, past their breaking point. Um, and there's a lot of affection for Ziggy. I mean, a lot, a lot of players will bring him up, and there's a lot of funny stories. Uh, Moose, Moose speaks about Ziggy with more affection than he does when talking about anyone else. The two men used to block the hell out of each other in practice. When Krauss was a coach and Zerbowski a player, the walls of Moose's small Notre Dame office are reserved for his favorite coaches, Rockney, Leahy, Terry Brennan, Parsegian, and Holtz. But there is only one Irish player up there, Ziggy himself. Ziggy was the life of the team and of, of the reunions of Leahy's players held later that year, later years. That's the guy. That is the guy. <laughs> That's the guy that, uh, that you do, that would be the guy you remember when you're playing. I, you know, think back to your own playing days, and not just in football, but in any sport. Uh, and you, there's probably a guy that you played with that you think about a lot uh, because of what, you know, what they did to make practice fun or, or memorable or in the locker room or just the, the jokes and the, which creates, you know, camaraderie. You know, it lifts the spirits. And when you have a hard line coach like Frank Leahy, you, those are the kind of things needed to keep to keep all of Frank's keep Frank's train moving. You would think that would derail it, right? Like it's like a like insubordination in a way, but it's not. It's it's a way to to lighten the load. It's you know they they always compare Frank to like a to a drill sergeant um, that everyone hates. Uh, then later down the road, you love him, and they always say that about Frank. And you say that about a lot of good coaches. Too, not just not just Leahy. A lot of great coaches. That's a, there's a good comparison there. Uh, but there was that guy like Ziggy that made sure you got through there with just you know that comic relief, just like in a movie when that's a little too heavy. You know, a little bit of that comic relief. Um, and the, the book really goes on to to talk <laughs> to talk about uh, Ziggy quite a bit, and I'll, I'll let you. Uh, let you guys enjoy that. But, you know, he was an acquired taste. It does say, you know, about um, uh, him and uh, Ziggy and Johnny Latin were playing for, uh, or maybe, yeah, was, no, Lou Jack, sorry, not Latner. Uh, Ziggy and Lou Jack were, were playing in this East-West game in, in San Francisco, and the coach was from Colgate and just did not get it. He did not understand Ziggy. Um, they said the during that game, the West scored and Ziggy stood in the the West scored and Ziggy stood in the middle of the field and said to the team, "Gentlemen, that was a fine drive." Then he led our team in a cheer for them. Rah rah West, rah rah West. Ziggy was Polish and I was Polish, so I understood the sense of humor. But Coach Kerr wasn't Polish and didn't understand any of it. He didn't know what the hell was going on. You should have seen the expression on his face when we came off the field after the cheer. We beat them forty to nine. I was MVP of that game, but Ziggy should have been. I mean, that's, that's kind of it right there. Um, <laughs> uh, it talks about Frank, uh, Frank's relationship with, uh, with Creighton Miller. Um, it, 
Creighton was not a uh, was not a guy who liked to practice. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, and there be a lot of names thrown out. Frank would call him uh, Fluff Duff, and, and you know Creighton was uh, discharged from. <clears throat> he'd sat down and practiced a lot. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and Frank asked him about you know. Miller was not allowed into the military and he was discharged because of high blood pressure. So he, they said he lasted four days in, uh, in basic training. And after, you know, a while of Frank, you know, kind of berating him for, for being quote unquote lazy and all that. Um, he asked him about, uh, his service. He says, your discharge, uh, means something. And he goes, what is it? And he says, it means I have high, high blood pressure and I don't want you to run me into the ground. And said so he never bothered him again. So I don't think that's really the, the softer Frank uh, after the war. It was just, okay, you know, he, <clears throat> he had to change it up. I mean, there was obvious reasons there. He, Frank Leahy was not endowed with the power to, to reach inside the body of a, of a person and change, uh, to medically change them. And he's smart enough to know that. Uh, so he was just get, he was going to get, be able to get, everything he could out of Creighton, uh, otherwise, um, gets into, there's a really fun antidote. Recruiting's all the, all the rage, right? <laughs> it's a lot of discussion, uh, even now in the off season with, um, you know, with the coronavirus stuff going on, uh, about how hard you recruit, what you're doing. Uh, and even back, so it's a fun antidote that goes, you know, back then. Uh, since Moose was lying in bed with a bad cold in the winter of 1946, he was very sick. The phone rang at 1 a.m. and his wife picked it up. When Moose asked her who it was, Elise said she thought the young man's name was Leon Hart and he was down at the South Bend train station. Leahy had invited him out to visit the campus and he just arrived in town. Moose had been recruiting Hart for weeks and when he heard the name, he jumped out of bed and ran for the door in his pajamas. His wife said, where are you going? And he said, to the train station, honey. I got to pick him up. She said, you'll die out there. He said, it doesn't matter. If I don't get hard on the team, Leahy will kill me anyway. Some serious business. 1 a.m., kid just shows up in town. Uh, 1946. Boom. Recruiting, recruiting's important. Recruiting's important is, is what it is going on. Um, and so and then the, the same story, <coughs> excuse me again. Same story coming from from uh, Hart himself. Uh, he said, I called Moose that night when I arrived because I knew it was too late to call Leahy. When his wife told him who was on the phone, I could hear him yelling in the background. Then I could hear him banging and crashing into things as he came to the phone. He drove out to get me in his overcoat and bedclothes. He took me over to the football stadium where there were some beds in the training room. For all the guys who were returning from the Army, Moose put me in there and left. I got undressed and got in bed. And at two or three in the morning, this big, rough-looking character started shaking me. He said, get the hell out of my bed. I moved real fast. That was my introduction to Notre Dame. It was probably the worst recruiting school of all time. You had to really want to go there. The next morning, I got out of bed and was wandering around looking for some breakfast. I went over to the athletic department and found a secretary who was nice enough to give me a pass for a meal. I didn't know what was going on, and I was kind of discouraged about being there. But I thought if anyone cared enough to get out of bed at 1 a.m. with pneumonia and come get me, maybe I better stay there and play football. Crute important. 
Moose Krause understood that. Look, Notre Dame, he's just a, the worst recruiting school of all time. That just did not, just listen, a kid comes in, you just kind of throw him in somewhere, leave him there. He's got no, no idea where he's going to eat, just kind of wandering around. Uh, but he's there. But you throw that into the mix of he just showed up in the middle of the night and someone who was, you know, sick with pneumonia is making damn sure he's getting somewhere. That was important. Relationships are important. Knowing that somebody cares enough that you want there, want to be there, is important. So, in a sense, recruiting hasn't really changed all that much, you know, when it comes to that. Relationships and the, the feel of importance to, to somebody there. It may have seemed, you know, that story may seem like Notre Dame didn't give a shit about um, Leanna Hart being there, but Moose Krause did. And, you know, that meant a lot to Hart, which... Good thing for Notre Dame that uh, that it did. <laughs> um, man, it, yeah, I mean, it just goes in with talk, you know talking about Hart talks about George Connor, uh, another All American uh, lineman there at Notre Dame. Uh, he said Leahy was the greatest man I ever met. He had far more influence on your life than you ever believed or realized until much later. Nothing is beyond your reach. He taught us if you put yourself to it and use loyalty, hard work, dedication, and degradation. Those were the four things he believed in most. Get down on the ground and dig for it. Get dirty. As hard as he made you work, you knew he was working twice as hard. And he expected the same from his coaches. I mean, that's that. That's the gist, right? <clears throat> Leahy just he drove himself... He worked himself into, uh, I mean, such a, uh, you know, a stupor. I mean, he, he really, <clears throat> you know, he really just, his health declined. That's how much he cared. That's how dirty and down on the ground he got. Um, and he was eccentric. Uh, you know, the, talk, there's a famous story about, about Johnny Latner. Um, and so I'm, I'll read it with the... <clears throat> what the book had to say about that. Mrs. Latner, when I was a junior and we were playing Purdue, I fumbled five times. That was a record. And I, and I said, and I don't think it's ever been broken. Going back to South Bend on the train. I asked our assistant coach, Bill early, if I could go home and see my sick brother, instead of remaining with the team after we arrived, I wanted to get away from everyone for a while. Leahy didn't like this idea, but he let me do it on Monday. He had chalk talk. And his first statement was, Oh my God, lads, do you realize there's a traitor among you? An enemy who disgraced you and everyone else who loves Notre Dame in front of 59,000 people last Saturday. He didn't mention my name, but he didn't have to. I felt terrible inside. He gave me a 45-minute lecture on my fumbling. When I tried to leave, he told me to come back. And he said, I can't understand how you can do this. Do you even have any trouble with girls? No, I don't, Lou Jack said. Latter said, he told me that that he'd heard that I used to go to the racetrack, and he asked if I bet on the game against Notre Dame. I said no, I hadn't done that. He asked me to do him a favor. He said, go to confession, lad, and confess those five mortal sins you committed last Saturday. He wanted to eradicate fumbling out of my system forever. Then he told me to carry a football around all week to my classes, 
And I did because I was afraid he'd toss me off the team if I didn't. After that, I never fumbled very much. Sound familiar? I mean, that scene out of the program where, uh, you know, I think that program came out in, what, 93, 94? Uh, maybe 92. That, I think that was the first time I had seen seen something like that from a coach. Uh, but obviously that was a long-standing thing. or It's, it's been around for a while. Uh, but just the, the fact that Frank, I don't think he just said it. I mean, he honestly... Bu- Believed it, and I think the players mentioned that in, in other interviews. Is that that was a sin against Notre Dame and against God to fumble? Uh, I, I don't, you know, there's a mind games there, but I mean, I think he felt that. Like it, it felt like a when he called him a tra- he called him a traitor. Uh, it felt like a betrayal, you know that that you keep giving that ball away to the other team. Like you're you're losing this. You're you're a, you're a traitor. You're a Judas, um, and that was Frank. So it's a, Moose said Frank worked so hard he got sick a lot. Three times I had to take over and coach the team. We beat USC, Washington, Tulane. He said I'm the only undefeated football coach in Notre Dame history. In one of those games, we were leading USC twenty six to nothing. And I told our quarterback George Ratterman, "No matter what you do, keep the ball on the ground and don't throw it." We get down to their goal line and he throws interception. And their guy runs it back for a touchdown. He comes over to the sideline, and I go out to kill him. He says, sorry, coach. He's the only one open. So, and it, it, it kind of glosses, the book glosses over the fact that Frank missed some games. I mean, I, I don't even know, I really don't know if the, <clears throat> I'd have to check and see if the, these games are credited to Frank, but, but, uh, yeah, yeah. He got. He would get so sick. He. I mean, right there's three games in. in um, you know that Moose had a coach, and it talks about another one where before where um, he just. Well, here it is. October twenty fourth, nineteen fifty three, Frank collapsed in the Irish dressing room at halftime of the Georgia Tech game, which was being played in South Bend. The cause was pancreatitis, a severe inflammation of the pancreas gland. And the original prognosis was that he might die. Father Edmund Joyce was brought into the locker room and he administered last rites over the coach. There were Notre Dame players in the dressing room that day who wondered if their coach was feigning the illness as a motivational tool. He tried other things that were nearly as dramatic, but this was no ploy. When the team came out for the second half, Moose was up in the press box where he had once been stationed as an assistant. He couldn't find Leahy on the field. I didn't know what the hell happened, he said. When I saw he was gone, I went down and told Joe McCardle to coach the rest of the game. Joe Dole never talks about Leahy without breaking into a grin. And he, he, and Joe, I'm not going to read that, but it talks about how a uh, Navy coach was pissed off because it, he, Frank's demeanor with him throughout the years was always different. One year he'd be real icy, next year he'd be real, real cool. The next year he's real icy, and he said he was going to wait this year to find out. Um, let Frank make the move, first move, basically, to, to see what was going on. And then he's like, that son of a bitch didn't even show up. Uh, so, you know, that's how I work it. <clears throat> but, you know, Lady recovered from his illness and worked the remainder of the 1953 season. Uh, but he knew that he didn't want to die. And so he was finished uh, at Notre Dame. You know, that was it for Frank. Uh, and 
I'm not sure of his exact. I think it was maybe 47, 48, something like that. Uh, anyway, not an old man uh, at this point, but he had drove himself into being an old man and with with medical conditions and all that, it makes it even worse. They said Frank, you know, walked, uh, kind of stooped, uh, do that short shuffle on the sideline, uh, you know, and just looked decades older than what he was. Uh, but it's important to realize, and I said at the beginning of the show, how important Frank is to Notre Dame football. Um, and I, honestly, if you're reading this book along with me, this whole chat, you, I've skipped over so much. There is just so much about um, about, about Frank and, and his players in here. But um, here's the thing. When he retired, he coached four Heisman Trophy winners, Pertelli, Lujak, Hart, and Latner, and he recruited a fifth in Paul Horning. Winning percentage aside, his team's overall performance was perhaps a shade better than Rockney's. Leahy had six undefeated seasons to Rock's five, four national titles to Rock's three, 39 consecutive games without a loss to Rocks 20 and a final record of 87, 11, and 9 to Rocks 105, 12, and 5. <laughs> giant numbers. Absolutely giant numbers. When you're ranking Notre Dame's coaches, I think most people will always go Rockney Leahy in order, one and two. And I get that. And I, it's hard to argue against. But, and I won't argue against it, but I will make the argument for Leahy 1, Rockney 2. I just will. It's it. It's, it's a, it was a different game. He was still able to do this. I mean, it, all those national championships, and I mean, I guess when you <clears throat> when you if you count the co championships, I think uh, I think they're actually tied because uh, Notre Dame, and you'll find out a lot more about this next week on the site on One Foot Down. Uh, Notre Dame has got ten uh, co champion co national titles that they don't really count in their you know uh, in their media guides or like that, <clears throat> but there is a plaque. Up, so they count it internally. I, I don't get it. Anywhere else, a co-championship is is honored uh, as a nas- just a national championship. Uh, and, you know, on that plaque, like the '93 Notre Dame team is one. The hell, the '89 Notre Dame team is another co-championship. They were I, they were declared champions by someone somewhere. Uh, but Notre Dame only really claims the the you know the AP coaches kind of stuff like that within their guides. But anyway, so I think overall, both of them are the same. Frank's teams were just dominant, absolutely dominant. Um, that, that lap between pre-war, post-war, all those Heisman Trophy winners, is um, <clears throat> just, it really is an amazing run. Um, and somehow, some way, somewhere, uh, someone needs, needs to make a movie about Frank Leahy. Uh, and I think there, there's enough. There is so much character. You find the right actors to play Frank and to play Moose. And I think if you work that combo in that movie, you changing hearts and minds everywhere. Um, but th- there's a lot to be said about 
Frank Leahy and his contribution to Notre Dame. Uh, it, it, God, man, you know, if, it, if his health just didn't fade him, just like with Rock, you know, if if he didn't die tragically in a plane accident, what would his career have been overall? Uh, you wouldn't have had Leahy. Uh, that's you know, but just just another like man, this got cut way too short. Um, Frank ended up, you know, he was out of football and he ended up living in, uh, in, uh, Oregon and Portland. Uh, and that's where he eventually, uh, passed away. And, uh, there's a funny story about his, about his funeral, of uh, the pallbearers, you know, they, there's some old guys carrying this casket and, uh, Moose, uh, Moose and uh, George Connor were two of the guys of that, and he's they, they were kind of huffing and puffing and, and sweating as they were getting to the hearse. And he says, I turned to Connor and said, Oh, George, Leahy always said the last 10 yards were the hardest. You know, and the, the, the funeral was kind of funny too because it kind of feels like an Irish wake the way they talk about it, where they just talked about what a son of a bitch he was as a coach. And then finally, uh, it said Moose had gone up and talked after all these guys laid out, laid out all their, these horror stories of Frank as a coach, right? Being such a hard ass. And he says, yeah, you know, you wanted to kill him Monday through Friday, but on Saturday you won. And it said at the funeral that they, a loud cheer went up. That's a, that's a great, that's a great funeral. That's a great, great way to be talked about. Um, and most of us could only, Wish that, uh, you know, you wish you could kind of see your funeral, I guess, not to be morbid, but you kind of, hey, how's this going to go? But you would hope that, that there, was, there was some way to celebrate your life in, the, in that kind of manner. And that, was, that was, I thought that was pretty cool. So um, I'll leave you with this. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to end the podcast and uh, on this kind of thing. It said, one night years after I left Notre Dame, I came back. For a visit, says Johnny Lujak. Creighton and I and Frank went to dinner at Eddie's restaurant. We had a few cocktails and were reminiscing. He was no longer a coach, and we were out of football, and we were all relaxed. It got late, about 2 in the morning, and we left Eddie's. Frank suggested that we drive by campus. We were coming up the boulevard that goes right by the Golden Dome with our lady on top of it, and he told me to stop. I pulled over, and we all looked up. The moonlight was hitting the dome, and it was very quiet outside. No one spoke for a while. Then Frank said, Gents, there might be the greatest sight the world has ever known. It's a shame that everyone can't see it. Creighton and I just looked at each other. There wasn't anything else you could say. And that was Frank. A great coach. A son of a bitch. uh, but truly a Notre Dame man in every sense, every way uh, of what it was supposed to be and truly felt that in his heart and gave the university and that football program every bit of who he was. And that should be and will always be appreciated by fans from past generations to future generations. So next time on the podcast, or on the bookcast, excuse me, we will get to uh, post Frank life, uh, which wasn't the uh, which weren't the easiest days after after Frank uh, 
after Frank left Notre Dame, things were a little dicey, but then there's obviously there is a light at the end of the tunnel with that. So I thank you for listening to this. Uh, went a little longer than I wanted to. I told you chapter that chapter is just full and I left out so much stuff. I really hope that you are reading this book. Um, uh, again, it, it, it was such a joy when I was a kid reading it. Uh, and I'm, I'm feeling that same thing now. Uh, laughing at the same things I remember laughing about as a kid, maybe with more understanding now as, instead of being 15, uh, I'm 41, uh, reading this with a little bit more of just a little bit more experience in life. Uh, and maybe some things make more sense. Uh, but it's a great read. And, uh, but if you're not, hopefully these, uh, little, little podcasts here are, uh, are informing you enough about what you, what you should know, what you need to know. So please rate and review the show on Apple podcasts. If you do that, we will read verbatim your review on the OFD podcast. Uh, we got some special stuff coming up over the next couple of weeks on the site, uh, in the pot, the OFD podcast are going to reflect those. Got some theme weeks coming. Uh, and that's going to be nationwide on SB nation. So, you know, there's not a whole lot going on in our uh, coronavirus world, uh, but we're trying to make the most of it and uh, and have some fun, uh, or as much fun as we can, um, before you know the the shit really hits the fan. So, thanks again for listening. Go Irish. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.